Hello, and welcome to today's podcast episode on bipolar depression. This episode is part of the Clinical Care Options podcast series, Advancing Care in Bipolar Depression. I'm Dr. Greg Mattingly, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine and President of the Midwest Research Group here in St. Louis, Missouri. With me here today to discuss the spectrum of bipolar depression and mixed features is a world-renowned expert in this area, Dr. Charles D. Batista, a professor of behavioral sciences and psychiatry at Stanford University. Uh, Dr. D. Batista, let's go ahead and jump into the discussion if that's okay. Sounds good. So let's talk a little bit about the bipolar spectrum. How does our current definition of bipolar spectrum you know, how does that kind of differ from some of the original versions of bipolar disorder? Well, it depends on how far back we want to go. But in fact, the current descriptions of uh, mixed states really resembles in some ways the earliest descriptions uh, in the literature, in the world literature, uh, going back actually even to the ancient Greeks. So, um, you know, Aristotle and Hippocrates way back when had a lot to say about what we now call bipolar disorder. And a later uh, Greek physician, uh, Eretaeus of Cappadocia, uh, actually described uh, melancholia, or depression as it was, as it was previously called, um, as the commencement and a part of mania. That, so even at that time, 2,000 years ago, roughly, um, there was an understanding that depression and many occurred on a spectrum and sometimes overlapped. Uh, sometimes the symptoms were mixed. Even Kraplan in the late uh, uh, 1800s uh, described lots of mixed states in between full-blown manias and full-blown depressions, described about six of, of these. DSM kind of got away from that, though, uh, especially DSM-3 and 4 really put up in some ways a firewall between major depression and mania and hypomania as distinct syndromes. Did have a, a mixed state uh, diagnostic category um, in uh, DSM, but it was a combination of the full syndrome of depression and mania, which clinically almost never occurs. Um, I've seen one person in the past 25, 30 years that I, I really felt actually met full syndromal criteria for both mania and depression. Uh, but it's really quite uncommon, uh, very hard to very hard to meet. So in DSM-5, um, was a recognition that one could have mixed features both in depression and in mania and hypomania. And that this is actually much more consistent with the way Kreplin thought about things or even the way the ancient Greeks thought about the spectrum of bipolar disorder. So now, instead of having to meet full syndromal criteria, in DSM-5, one had to have at least three symptoms of mania or hypomania in the context of a major depressive episode or vice versa, three depressive symptoms in the context of a mania or hypomania. So, so let me see if I've got it. Our current definition, as I understand it, is I'm stuck in one spectrum or another. I can be depressed. I can be manic. I can be hypomanic. But at the same time, I have three or more features of kind of the opposite polarity. So in the case of hypomania, I have three dysphoric symptoms of depression. In the case of depression, I have three mixed symptoms of mania or hypomania. 
Maybe I can't shut my mind off at night. Maybe I do have racing thoughts. Maybe I am impulsive. Um, so three or more of that opposite pole on top of what I'm currently stuck in. Is that kind of the, the current definition? That is the current definition. I, I love your historical reference. And my wife and I last year were in Greece. Uh, we went to the island of Delos, where the people there were the Menaeids because they would party and revel all night. And some of the, the de early definitions of mania came from that group. Um, and I think it puts it in perspective that, you know, this isn't a new concept. Um, bipolar disorder isn't a new disorder. And probably even more importantly, it's a global disorder. You know, isn't, it isn't just a disorder of St. Louis, Missouri, or New York, or Stanford, mm -hmm. but people in, you know, southeastern Arkansas, people in the, you know, the, the rural southeast, people in the, you know, the Arizona desert. You see bipolar disorder everywhere. That's right. Well, what's the most common presentation? I know you've done a lot of work at Stanford and a lot of work across the country and around the world globally. So what are some of the most common presentations that people do show up with bipolar? How should we as clinicians think about it? How does it hit our radar screen? Um, in terms of mixed kinds of presentations, uh, among the more common uh, um, presentations, for example, in mania or hypomania, is having significant dysphoria in the context of a manic or hypomanic episode or significant anxiety. Since again, many of our bipolar patients have prominent anxiety symptoms. Now, again, we don't necessarily think of anxiety as part of the criteria for depression, but about 40 to 60% of patients with depression have significant anxiety. And again, panic and anxiety are really quite common features uh, of manic episodes. And on the other uh, pole, in depression, we'll often see racing thoughts, agitation, significant anxiety, what would sometimes be called historically an agitated depression, uh, where somebody was uh, very distractible, quite irritable, restless, couldn't sit still, kind of a hand-wringing uh, type of depression. Um, often, you know, it has part and parcel these sort of uh, hypomanic or manic features often with racing thoughts, um, uh, sometimes even with an increase in a kind of a disjointed goal-directed activity. They're wanting to do uh, a lot, but can't complete projects. They'll go from one thing to another. Um, so again, there are lots of variations, but those are some of the more common ones that we see. Let's talk about two hot topics. The first topic is that of trauma. How does trauma affect bipolar disorder? And the second one would be medication or drug-induced alterations. How do we sort those out from, is this bipolar? Is this a drug-induced episode or is it some of both? So start with trauma. How does trauma influence the development of bipolar and the way it may present? So, you know, we, we've been interested in the role of trauma, particularly trauma during um uh, critical periods of development, say between the ages of three and seven, as having a significant impact um, ultimately on a disposition to mood disorders, depression in particular, but potentially um, bipolar disorder as well. And also that um, those kinds of early traumatic experiences seem to render patients less responsive to standard treatments. Uh, our colleague, uh, Charlie Nemiroff, uh, would say that those patients also probably are more responsive to psychotherapeutic interventions, at least in the, you know, in the depressed poll. Um, any type of uh, drug-induced uh, mania or hypomania, um, we want to pay attention to as, as potentially being 
on the spectrum. So a pharmacologic hypomania or mania doesn't happen in everybody. And if it does happen, um, it, it's certainly an indication that we need to think about the possibility that one could be in a, a in the bipolar spectrum and um, that bipolar interventions may be, may be indicated. So if somebody has an antidepressant triggered mania or hypomania, now with DSM-5, do we categorize that as bipolar or are they just bipolar or suspicious? Um, well, again, I can give you my opinion, which is that it, they're, they're bipolar suspicious. Uh, technically speaking, in DSM, um, it would be kind of a, a the replacing unspecified, uh, potentially unspecified bipolar or in the old category, bipolar NOS. Um, but since it doesn't happen in every patient uh, who we treat with antidepressants, anybody who does develop a pharmacologic hypomania with an antidepressant should at least be considered as, as being on the spectrum. Yeah, I, I would agree 100%. And having seen kids, adolescents, young adults who destabilize when you get an antidepressant on board, when you follow them over time, a lot of them wind up going on to have you know, mood cycling disorders in the bipolar spectrum. Um, when you were talking about Charlie Nimeroff and talking about, you know, those bipolar, those trauma-induced patients being less medication responsive, I remember Joe Biederman's work talking about the trauma plus genetic loading shifted the age of onset of when these people started having bipolar spectrum conditions. And so if you had both high trauma and high genetic loading in Joe's study, it was done with the Mass General Group. What they found is, you know, it wasn't an age of onset in the 20s. A lot of those individuals started having the onset of symptoms, you know, in childhood, age 8, 9, 10, 11. So a shifting of the age of onset associated with trauma and associated with that, you know, high genetic loading. How has how the mixed symptom specifier changed the way you think about your practice as far as treatment options, how you would teach your residents, your medical students there at Stanford? So if somebody comes in, they have bipolar mixed, let's say they have depression with some hypomanic symptoms or they have mania with some depressive symptoms, which treatments do you stay away from? Which treatments do you think about? So the treatments that, you know, that we tend to gravitate towards in anybody that uh, is in the bipolar spectrum are probably first the second generation antipsychotics. And the reason for that is that they're useful in both poles. They're useful as adjunctive strategies. And again, as, as I mentioned, that many patients with um, depression with mixed features have agitation, irritability. Uh, these are also potential indications for uh, an antipsychotic. Mood stabilizers um, also can be considered, but have generally been somewhat less consistent in their overall benefits. Uh, so um, you know, be inclined to probably start with a, uh, if they're, for example, if they're on an antidepressant, they have some of these mixed features, that probably the next step uh, would be a second generation antipsychotic. Again, there may be instances where a mood stabilizer like lithium uh, might have a role but um, the second generation antipsychotics have been a little more consistent uh, in their treatment of bipolar depression um, and in some of these associated features of mixed states, including agitation, uh, which comes up quite a bit. I remember one of the studies we were in years ago, and this was when DSM-4 was kind of looking at DSM-5 and what was going to happen with mixed features. So we did a mixed symptom depression study, um, and I believe it was Patricia at your university was the lead author in the study. But when we asked those patients, those patients that had depression plus mixed symptoms, what's been the least effective medicine? And you saw they'd been on a laundry list of a lot of things. They rated antidepressants as being the least effective. 
Yeah. They rated traditional mood stabilizers as being the middle group. They hadn't been very successful, but at least they weren't a train wreck. And just as you said, they said low doses of atypical antipsychotics seem to be the most beneficial treatments for them. Right. In, in general, say in, in somebody, for example, who is a bipolar one patient, the wisdom is to try to stay away from antidepressants because they're no more effective than placebo and can be destabilizing. And bipolar two patients, again, they may have a, antidepressants may have a bigger role to play. But uh, in any case, the, the addition of a, of a second generation antipsychotic is often useful, whether they're a bipolar one depressed patient or a bipolar two. I, and I think there's some data out there, and you're certainly the expert in this area. But if somebody has depression with mixed symptoms and they've never yet had a manic or a hypomanic episode, the more mixed features they have, the higher the likelihood that they're eventually going to develop a version of bipolar. Is that kind of correct, Dr. DiPatista? Yeah, no, that is that is correct. Yeah, so the more symptoms that show up on that MDQ, the more things that show up, the more you worry about the chance this person may convert all to, on down the line. Let me end with a topic that's a real clinical conundrum. And this is, you know, how do you pull apart? Is this a mixed symptom? Is this depression and anxiety? Or is this just a really irritable person? You know, irritability, which can be transdiagnostic. How do you kind of pull those things apart? Depression with anxiety, irritability, or is this a mixed state? Yeah, it, it's, it can be difficult. It can be, a, it's certainly a clinical challenge. On the other hand, um, the, it, it may not be as important as one would think to actually tease these things apart because, it, because just as irritability and agitation can be transdiagnostic, the medications that we have available also have transdiagnostic benefit. So, for example, you know, we used to want to be very careful about uh, you know, misdiagnosing a ad, you know, somebody with a, de uh, a depression who might be in the bipolar spectrum for fear of putting them on an antidepressant and inducing either more rapid cycling or um, uh, having them flip to mania or hypomania. In the case of using, for example, antipsychotics, it, it may not matter a whole lot. Um, as I mentioned, for things like agitation and irritability, antipsychotics are used not just in psychiatric disorders. They're used frequently in emergency rooms or ICUs, use them quite a bit to manage agitation, even in a non-psychiatric kind of state, delirium or another uh, underlying medical condition. So um, we're fortunate not to have to be quite as precise, perhaps, as we as we once were because some of the medications that we might apply, say to an irritable, agitated, uh, depressed individual might be useful uh, if uh, they're in the bipolar spectrum or if they're in the unipolar, uh, if they're more kind of unipolar, uh, but, uh, both in terms of treating some of these associated symptoms, but also in augmenting overall antidepressant response. Um, so I'm not sure how precise we need to be at this point. So you're talking about a little more of a transdiagnostic approach, and I like that. And I think one of the things that comes with that is when we talk about antipsychotics, you know, not all antipsychotics are created equal. Mm -hmm. The group of medicines we call antipsychotics have very diverse receptor profiles. Yeah. And, you know, you and I probably think of them more as being dopamine, serotonin receptor modulators. And some of those modulators are partial agonists. Mm -hmm. Some of those have more serotonin properties than dopamine properties. Um, some of these medicines were derived from serotonergic medicines that were modified to just slightly tinker with dopamine. So we think about this kind of transdiagnostic, what version of depression is it? 
What tools do I have to help treat this version of depression? Um, and then I think you always think about irritability because irritability blows up the situation. What would you say about probably the, the last topic I'd like to talk about here? Because we talked about using atypicals. Talk about the risk benefit ratio. When you think about, you know, is it worth, you know, the risk versus the benefit of going on one of these medicines? What are the things that go through your mind when you think about the risk assessment of, of side effects with these medicines? Yeah. So, of course, you know, the, the biggest concerns, the two big groups of concerns um, with the second generation um, and first generation antipsychotics are the metabolic issues um, of which the second generation drugs probably are uh, more problematic than the first generation. And then EPS, for which the second generations have a benefit relative to the first generation drugs. And this profile may be, actually be a little different in depressed patients than it is in schizophrenic or bipolar patients. We've seen, for example, that the rates of some um, side effects like uh, akathisia um, may actually be higher, at least in the, in the large uh, registration trials uh, for some of these drugs in depressed patients relative to bipolar or schizophrenic patients. There may be a number of reasons for that, including you know, the use of concurrent medications, uh, and perhaps even that many depressed patients are going to be a little more sensitive than, say, a manic patient or perhaps even a schizophrenic patient to some to some side effects. So we want to be sort of cognizant of that. Also, most of the studies done with um, second generation and first generation antipsychotics in mood disorders are short term studies. There's still a relative lack of data about the long-term risks in a depressed population. We know a fair amount in uh, a schizophrenic or bipolar uh, population, uh, but in a unipolar depressed population, we know we don't know quite as much. Um, and so we do have to kind of consider, um, again, what benefit they're getting in terms of addressing some of those symptoms like uh, their depression, their agitation, anxiety, irritability, sleep issues, and so forth that might be addressed by an antipsychotic, and the cost in terms of side effect burden over the long run, not just the short run. I, I think you summed it up. You know, it's those long-term side effects, having been a part of some studies, probably the longest typically going out to about a year, year and a half, where you look at weight gain, you look at metabolics, you look at sedation, you look at sexual side effects, and then you brought up, you know, if you, if you blow somebody up and make them agitate or akathetic when you first start a medicine. The good news is, you know, some of our new tools, I think the metabolic and the weight gain burden is going to be significantly better than maybe some of the tools we've had up until now. So we have new tools that have come out and new tools in development where the metabolic burden actually looks fairly reasonable and pretty promising for our patients. Dr. DiBattista, let me thank you so much for this conversation. As always, you know, one of our world experts in this field. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. We hope you found this discussion informative for your clinical practice, talking about the world of bipolar with mixed features. For more information on this series, please visit the show notes. Thank you very much.